Life Jitsu, Art of Life, back here with part two with Tom Monahan. Tom, I'll warn you, we're not going to go another hour, so don't worry about that. But uh, I want to get, you know, it's, it's basically, we're talking with a retired LVMPD, Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, homicide lieutenant, been in Las Vegas 33 years. We're looking at life through his eyes and mentally juggling the kind of things you can see as a police officer with trying to be a good citizen, the best father, the best parent you can be. And so, Tom, we were entering a conversation now. You've been in Las Vegas 33 years. You've seen it change and evolve. Talk about the Vegas that you came into 33 years and what's the Las Vegas you're seeing now and that you expect to see in the next five to 10 years? 33 years ago, there was 500,000 people here. Uh, you could get anywhere in town in 20 minutes. Uh, now we're 2.2 million, and some days it might take me an hour and a half to get to uh, the other side of the ballot. So uh, with the good comes the bad. Um, you know, the, the traffic congestion, the, the smog. We used to be able to look out the window and see the mountain ranges very clearly as if it were a mural painted on the horizon. Um, every family that comes here and plants tr trees or shrubs that aren't indigenous brings, you know, pollen that didn't uh, that didn't come from here, and and so those of us that didn't suffer from allergies now yeah. suffer from allergies. It's two of us. Yeah. So uh, you know that's the downside. On the uh, on the upside, there's lots of things for for people to do. Uh, it's. When I moved here, the average age of the tourists was between 55 and 60. Now uh, you've got millions of 20-somethings coming just to hang out at the pools and, and go to the clubs. Uh, it's a really uh, vibrant town now. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not one-dimensional in terms of uh, the gambling. Um, and I think that's that's important because you don't have to come to Vegas to gamble. You can go to to you know nearly any state and there'll be a casino on a reservation you don't even have to go to a sports book to bet on sports now you can use your cell phone so uh, i think it was important for vegas to diversify um yeah i think it's only 30 percent roughly of the of the revenue now on the strip those major strip casinos it's down to 30 percent it's going to keep dwindling yeah. and in a weird way in, in an awesome way that's actually helped Vegas grow up and mature because we we can't be so reliant, we can't be so dependent on it, and it's forced us to develop other industries, attract tech talent, and really grow up and be a, re a real city. I mean, I, that's my take, at least. You're exactly right. Uh, Vegas is a classic example of a brand that had to adapt because of the business model disruptions. Yep. You know, uh, with the advent of Foxwoods back probably 15, 20 years ago in Connecticut, that's what that was a game changer mm -hmm. uh, when they started opening up casinos and Indian reservations. That was a complete game changer, and to their credit, uh, Vegas embraced the change. Uh, and and from what and I'm certainly no expert on business, but it sounds like Atlantic City did not embrace change, and as a consequence, Vegas is thriving, and Atlantic City is is not enjoying quite as much success. Yeah, from, from what I gather, um, and I've been in town about half the time. Tom Monahan's been here 33 years. I've been here 15, 16 years. 
And, um, but yeah, it, it, a lot of the people are coming here now for the nightlife, for the shows. It is a little more family friendly, attracting a lot more, even of the tech talent. And again, it's a very business friendly state. So I see a lot of people now. I mean, before, I guess the reputation was before in Vegas that people were moving here, you know, people who, who, who were maybe middle class or lower middle class, they were moving here, second chance, the so-called second chance state for opportunities, just for jobs. You're seeing people on all levels of the economic pyramid now, people high up saying, look, this is a great place to do business. There's, they're regulation friendly and, you know, it, it's, a lot, it's a lot better place to raise a family. Because when I came, and I'm sure you too, the, the hardest thing for me about Vegas was you, you meet good people and they come and they go. There's so many transplants. You're like, man, this, my friend is here and then two years later they're gone. Like a lot of people didn't want to stay. And now that the city's growing up, uh, I see more people that want to stay. Um, yeah, it's it's certainly still transitory, uh, but Tom, it's you not. Please turn down your stereo. No, just <laughs> Sorry, it's uh, it's still a uh, highly transitory state. Uh, I lived in a house for six years, and I had eleven next door neighbors, uh, and I knew none of them. Uh, as you know, every house around here is surrounded by a six-foot block wall, as opposed to New England, where you know you might have a three-foot, you know, personally built stone wall uh, or a chain-link fence at, at the very most. So, uh, people here value their privacy. The other interesting thing about Vegas is that a full 30% work other than day shift. So you can go to the grocery store at three in the morning uh, in find the same, you know, items on the shelves as you do at 8 in the morning. You can go to a restaurant and order spaghetti and meatballs at 6 in the morning or bacon and eggs at 5 in the evening. Uh, it's, a, it's a city without clocks. Uh, so in that regard, it's, uh, it's really unusual. I, I tell the story only in Vegas. When my son was in middle school, uh, you know, I'd be standing there with all the other parents waiting to pick my kid up after school, and I'm standing next to Wayne Newton who was picking his daughter up from school at the, at the same school. That's, uh, that's only in Vegas type of story. Yeah, I always, I, I used to say, apologize for that, this is, by the way, the easiest airport I've ever been to in the whole world to get in and out of, which is one thing I do love about Vegas, McCarran Airport, hands down. I've never met, it's like one of the perks of living here. If you're going to fly a lot, if you're going to travel a lot, apologize, here comes the kitty train again. I think it's like... Didn't they just come here two minutes ago? But easiest airport to get in and out of. Major, I think it's like the seventh biggest airport in the, the world, most traveled. Amazing airport to get in and out of. By the way, though, so you mentioned, so I always say there's six degrees of separation. Vegas, there's like two degrees of separation. Everybody, you're like one level away. No matter who you are, it's like, boom, you know somebody who knows the top people and I mean there's there's not everybody it's like it does it feels like a small town even with the two main people like everybody does know everybody there's not six degrees of separation here uh there's a lot you know like between even celebs and all it's like man um Bill Young who was the former sheriff your former say boss uh at LVMPD I remember one time he said to me and Bill Young, for those of you who are listening, Bill Young was a great character. I mean, he was he shot from the hip. He would say things. He was kind of like a Rudy, Rudy Giuliani, like the former mayor of, of New York. Like he would just he would speak with a candor and a bluntness and a straightforwardness that a lot of people didn't expect. He was not a politically correct 
person, which I loved, I thought that was beautiful, and Bill Young once said to me, on the record, hey, Frank, the town was better run when the mob ran it. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. But it's like, there were there were some good things. I mean, yeah, there were bad things. There were bodies in, in cars and trunks and whatever, and there was mob stuff. But in a way, there, there the city, some people would tell you, Sheriff Young being one of them, there were a lot of people who would say, look, things were, this town actually ran, like, people weren't as reckless and there wasn't as much craziness in a lot of ways in some weird way. Were you here to see the remnants of of what it was, I guess, when it still had one arm or one foot kind of in like the whole mob mystique? Were you here that and, and what was your sense of trying to navigate that? Yeah, so I got here in, in uh, 1985 and Tony Spilatro, uh, who would be played by Joe Pesci in the movie Casino, uh, was still alive and, and wouldn't be found dead in Indiana until 1987. So, yeah, I was around for the, the tail end of the mob run Vegas. Um, I don't attribute the, uh, the the lifestyle change to the fact that the mob was running it. Mm -hmm. I attribute it more to the fact that the average demographic was a lot older. The average tourist was 55. When you walk down the strip, people were dressed up. Um, people, uh, it was just a different uh, demographic age-wise mm -hmm. uh, up and down the strip. There were no pool clubs, uh, there were no uh, nightclubs that, that catered to the 20-somethings that we have now. The fact that, uh, that that is a growing percentage of the tourists, mm -hmm. uh, I think, has change the whole vibe of the strip. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Right, right. In fact, I, I embrace it. I appreciate the fact that uh, they're bringing in a lot younger people. I wish that that was the case in 1985. I would have had a lot more fun when I was living here. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that that has... Uh, and, of course, you know, it's well known that uh, crime uh, crimes are committed in inverse relationship to age. The mm -hmm. younger we are, the more reckless we are. The older we get, the more careful we are. We're not prone mm -hmm. to, to do stupid that's things. That's an interesting prism. Yeah, and that's a very good observation. So, I, I, you know, I've heard that a lot because I've been here long enough to to know people that were here during the, uh, the golden years of the mob. But I, I think it has more to do with uh, the changed uh, market of Las Vegas mm -hmm. than who was... Identity changed. Yeah, Ident yeah branding, yes. Yeah. Um, interesting, for those of you who have been to Las Vegas, there's the saying when you go into the casinos, eye in the sky, the <coughs> eye in the sky being all of these cameras surveilling, watching what you're doing, watching who comes in, watching people at uh, tables and what they're doing, making sure they don't cheat, etc. So there's maybe, I like to think, maybe more cameras per square foot around that Las Vegas Strip than, than almost anywhere I can think of. And so, Tom, that raises an interesting, um, an interesting topic now is the notion of privacy from computers, right? Everything we do, there's a record of everything we do on a computer, on an iPhone. There are ever more cameras, which can be great for police work and, and you know, criminal convictions, etc. On the other hand, we, you know, we have to balance individual privacies, right? Right, privacy rights with um, with all of these, all of the data, all of the videoing, people who aren't necessarily criminals, but there's video of everything they do. 
What should a regular person's expectation of privacy be in 2018? What should I just assume that everything that I'm doing, whether I'm in Las Vegas or should I just assume that everything I'm doing is someone's picking it up, even if I'm in my own house? Like, how how do you look at privacy as somebody who's been on the inside? You know a lot of what you know what what can, what video cameras and surveillance, whatever you 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 live in that world. How much of your world do you think is actually private? Like Frank, I have no expectation of privacy. Everything everything is known. I mean, how much of an of an expectation should we have? So, interesting question. Yeah, uh, and I will disclose your your personal opinion. Yeah, it's I'll, not a professional, but I'm going to disclose my bias. Yeah. I'm I'm on the side of personal privacy and personal liberty. Yeah. Um, so I fall on that side of the conservative end of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, it's well established that when you are outdoors, when you're in a public environment, you have no reasonable expectation of privacy to what you're doing. Um, what you're thinking, what you're reading, what you're saying, you have some reasonable expectation of privacy. But the fact that you are walking down a public sidewalk or driving down a public roadway, you have no reasonable expectation of privacy. Once you enter a casino, the casinos make it clear that you enjoy no expectation of privacy there. You have no privacy. But make no mistake, the casinos don't care about you. They care about protecting their money. So when you're in there, yeah, you're on camera. But, a lot of latitude. But they don't care about what you're doing unless it jeopardizes their ability to keep their money. Um, in terms of within your, within your home, your home is your castle as far as I'm concerned. The government or anybody else has no right to, to pry into that absent uh, probable cause that you're committing or about to commit a crime. And... Uh, you know, I think that um, there have been a lot of abuses to that, and uh, I think that technology has outpaced legislation as it comes to protecting our rights, um, and that's simply because of the, you know, again, I, I embrace and I'm happy that the, the pace of legislation is somewhat plotting and cumbersome because, again, I don't want some overreactionary yeah. type of legislation. On the other hand, uh, technology is advancing at light speed, um, and technology has been far slower to keep pace with that, especially as it relates to our privacy. Now, there are certain doctrines that are established in our Constitution um, and have been settled by case law over the course of 200 and some odd years um, that provide clear guidelines, um, but that's that's my position on it. I saw somewhere, I believe it was Dubai or Abu Dhabi, where there was like a robot police, you know, robot police officer, maybe more for show at this point, but nevertheless, RoboCop. Is the future of policing, is it going to evolve a lot of, like, are we going to see robot, I mean, you know, this is just conjecture, but do you have any sense that, like, look, we're heading to, you will have robot cops in 20, maybe even sooner, 15, 20, 25 years, is that the future of policing, or it has to be a human deal? No, in fact, uh, I predict that the future of policing will become lesser and lesser high-tech. It will become more and more humanistic. Uh, if you look at the evolution of policing, it began back in the 1800s, with a very personal, you know, cop on the street. Uh, then it came, to, and that was in England. 
the very first policing in America was unarmed night watchmen, and it evolved. And then in the 60s and 70s, it changed dramatically in Los Angeles, where response times became the primary metric of success and how effective we were. Uh, we saw that that was not effective, that it didn't deter crime, it didn't prevent crime, it didn't make policing any more effective from a community perspective. I mean, and that's ultimately our customers. So then we saw the community-oriented policing uh, doctrine where, uh, you know, they tried to put more cops in the street. The problem is, is that you still have to respond. Um, the other the other problem to that is that in most communities there's only the police that work anytime after six and all day Saturday and Sunday so all the other government organizations are closed so for most of the most of the community that can't afford you know a plumber on a Sunday or a psychiatrist at three in the morning they just know if they call 911 the cops are going to show up and so the cops are being tasked with things that were ill prepared and ill-trained to do. The mental mental illness crisis is a great example. Uh, Cops are being asked to do things that they're they're ill-prepared for, ill-trained for, yet expected to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I predict that in the future what you're going to see is more police officers Mm -hmm. being uh, paid less money because you know, the society can only afford... So, so right now, I think we have 22, whatever, 2,500 or so cops here in Vegas, r- roughly. I mean, how many cops? LVMPD. Right. I, I don't know the numbers. Uh, it's probably close to about 3,500, 4,000 okay. cops on the street. You, you think that goes up, but but you think... I think the, the, I think the, a lot. the ratio... Think it goes up a lot, yeah. I think the ratio of police officers per population will go up. I think their salaries will go down because taxes can only afford so much. Um, but... The thing is, is that it's it's going to cause cops to be more more interpersonal. We are we have to a lot more have, psych- psychology. We it. have to resolve conflicts through interpersonal communication because society won't allow us to just use force. Yeah. Um, we have gotten to that point, and I think it's you know it's a it's a disruptor. Uh, but it's a good disruptor, and, and we have to change. Uh, and so I, I see that as the future of policing, where uh, cops will be lesser paid. There'll be a lot more of them. They will be uh, more highly trained on the interpersonal skills, and that will be how they're expected to resolve conflict. Um, a lot more diffusement. And, and psychological navigating and yeah, I think I, I think that that's. But you can only do that because if if a police officer is afraid for his or her safety, right. they're not going to engage in interpersonal communication. They're going to use right. whatever force they have to protect their lives. And so, if we continue to put cops out by themselves in individual cars, they're you, going you, to. Do so you think it's going to be like Starsky and Hutch, a lot more teams, a lot more of a, a team copying, you know? I think that uh, if this more humanistic style of policing is to be effective, you do. You need to uh, cause police officers to be less fearful so that they're more likely to engage in communication. So sending sending them with partners, they feel a little better. Right. Um, By the way, suicide by cop. 
is that phenomenon going up? Are more people trying to get themselves killed suicide by cop? Yeah, I, I can't point to any statistics. Yeah. Uh, do I know for a fact that it's a real and legitimate phenomenon without question? Um, but I can't point to any yeah. statistics because, again, it's in a conclusion drawn by someone based on the evidence um, to, to, you know, there's only two people that knew, there's only one person that knew what was going through the decedent's mind, and he's no longer able to tell us what happened. Do we know from, from circumstances? Do we know from people that have left notes? Do we know from people that have attempted suicide by a cop and survived and told us afterwards what happened? Yes, we know that it's a phenomenon, but do, I can't say that it's going up Tom, the, um, the percentage, I heard a stat and I don't remember it, but I got you here and I'm hoping you can answer this. The percentage of cops that will fire their gun in the line of duty is roughly what, or give me a sense of that, even if you can't put a, a, a percentage on that, is that highly improbable? How many police officers, I've heard that most won't, will not fire their gun. Most police officers in, the, in their line of duty, you know, their whole career, will not, will never fire their gun. Is that is that correct in your, your remembering? Yeah, it's, it's less than 10%. Wow. Have you ever had to, to shoot anyone or, or? No, I'm not going to talk about that. Um, you were you were over you were with SWAT too though right I mean what, you yeah were, I was a hostage negotiator for yeah about 10 that's years. interesting that's right that's right so even before you were a lieutenant of homicide you were a hostage negotiator that's so right. you've actually had uh, by the way how do you like when you're was you're a hostage negotiator I forgot that by the way I should remember that I've forgotten that Tom Monahan that's the more fascinating thing that's the real psycho that's the real psychological rabbit hole but. How do you get the guy, like, on the phone? I'm assuming it's a guy, usually. How do you get the bad guy on the phone? Like, you know, or is it, are you just using a bullhorn? How are you getting him? Like, how are you having that line of communication? It, uh, it depends on the circumstances. Bullhorn, usually? Uh, no, not necessarily. Uh, you know, we like to use a telephone because it's more personal. Uh, but if they don't have a telephone, we'll provide one, a, you know, a closed-circuit telephone. Um, but if we absolutely have to, we'll use a bullhorn. But it's, it's not... It's not desirable by any, and you know, uh, everybody that we dealt with, whether they were holding people hostage or whether they were barricaded uh, and just wouldn't come out, or whether they were suicidal, the common theme is they were all in crisis. They were in a position that they lacked the ability to process, you know, a way to, to get through this. How many? hostage negotiation situations roughly do you think you responded to? Uh, well, the the entire spectrum from hostage situations to barricaded subjects to suicidal subjects, the number is somewhere around 200. And so let's say you have a line of communication, the bad person or the person who is suicidal or has someone in there and they maybe will do harm to them. You get this person, somehow you get communication, whether, I don't know, bullhorn, phone conversation. How many times have you been able to, or, because it might be hard to know why they, maybe it was the conversation with you, maybe it wasn't, but how many times after you've been able to talk to them, is it like, okay, we were able to get them to, because the ideal is for them to just come out, surrender, right? That's the ideal, not for you to go in and storm. That's a last resort. There's all kinds of risks. You, if you have to go in, there's unknown risks to your officers to whomever might be inside but let's say you were to get them to surrender 
how many times are those 200 plus or whatever, whether they're suicidal or they might cause harm, how many of those times are you able to like get a desired result and get them to come out and, and surrender and a peaceful resolution where... Yeah, we didn't keep statistics, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a win-loss type of yeah. uh, column. Because, um, you know, that, that adds right. a whole... Well, what was your, what's your sense, your, your remembrance? It, it, was, it was... We were successful way more frequently than we were unsuccessful. Um, and, and that makes sense because uh, the folks that are holding hostages probably didn't plan on taking hostages because it wasn't a kidnap for ransom or it wasn't a terrorist act. It was an interrupted crime. The uh, best example I can think of is uh, the pawn shop that got robbed. And before the robbers could get out of the pawn shop, the cops showed up. And so we had a bit of a standoff. I wasn't the primary negotiator. So sometimes uh, it's, it's more of an accident. They didn't anticipate it. Yeah. The most common circumstance of a hostage uh, situation is the interrupted criminal act. Yeah. Then so there's, they, that's actually good for you because they actually don't really want to be in that situation. They just exactly right. kind of got... Oh man, how do I get out of this? They're they're basically trying to figure out a way out, and you're going to give them you're going to give them the the best option way out. That's exactly right. The uh, second most frequent is the barricade, and that's a great example. Would be a uh, husband and wife are fighting. He's beaten her. She calls the cops. Uh, the cops get there, and now he's got a gun and he won't leave. Uh, is she being held hostage? No, because he's not saying I want to. I want something in return for her release. So that's that's the definition of a hostage: somebody that's being held in, in exchange for something of substance. So he's barricaded. He just has somebody in there with him. That's uh, you know the most traditional or typical situation. Those are more delicate um, because you know there's a, there's an innocent life in the balance. Other than the the actor, him or herself, you've got this person uh, that would like to leave but can't. Um, Those generally are pretty successful, um, but not as as, uh, likely to be successful as the interrupted criminal hostage state. So you you have, you know, what's interesting is there's a lot of fluidity. You have to improvise. You have to read the situation, and you're basically doing a psychological estimation or evaluation of someone to figure out we're going to be able to talk this guy down from the ledge get him out surrender or we're not you you're constantly trying to probe this person's psychology and and is this going to be a situation where we're going to do a b c d you're you're constantly trying to manage it that that's that what you do or you're assigned to do that yeah um it's it's not quite like that in that there's always a team. So the hostage negotiator is never working alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's always he or she is always working with uh, his or her team, and uh, and that's very very important because while the the primary negotiator is engaged in conversation with the the person, uh, the other members of the team are looking for cues and they're providing some suggestions, some negotiation you strategies. you have psychologists there with you too? Or, we, or we, no? we brought on board uh, professional psychologists to assist us. But interestingly, uh, once they've done that, most psychologists agree that they are poorly suited to do crisis negotiation because all we're trying to do is work these people through the, uh, through the crisis. We're not interested in engaging in therapy, which is what these what a psychologist would do. So we are simply trying to work through um, the therapy. 
Secondly, you know, as cops, we're accustomed to being put in difficult, dangerous positions. So standing there talking with somebody with a gun to their head isn't necessarily disconcerting to a cop. But it's highly unusual for even the most best-trained psychologist to be standing, you know, on the other side of a, of a what, wall from a, a person with a gun to his head. What's the weirdest demand or request that you've had when you're... I mean, I'm sure that there's all kinds of strange things that can come up. I mean, you know, you, you think of something like a Hollywood where it's like, I want a pizza with anchovies and pepperoni. Like, people's minds can be in weird places when they're in the, a very disparate, maybe the most desperate situation of their life and threatening to do harm to themselves or other people. What what are some odd things that came up and, and how did you address them? Or, you know, were there odd kind of requests and demands... So it's, uh, it's a uh, horrendous story that had a happy ending. Uh, and I'll ask your listeners to reserve judgment um, because it, it isn't as obscene as it's going to sound. So uh, we had an occasion to be out in, uh, in Boulder City because um, they didn't have a, uh, a negotiation team. And there was a guy who was pissed off at, I don't remember what it was, um, but he was angry and he was going to kill himself and was going to kill his infant child. And, uh, and so we were, I was the primary negotiator and we were engaged in the negotiations and I became very, very concerned about the child's safety because at some point, uh, the, the guy stopped talking about his infant as a boy, as his son and started calling it it, kind of depersonalizing the baby. So that's a, a big, glowing red flag. So we were very, very concerned about this, and we were preparing a tactical plan to go rescue the infant. So I'm not sure how it happened, but we started talking about uh, his car. And he was, at, he, he was pissed off at, uh, at Boulder City Police Department, not for anything they did wrong, but he was just pissed off at him. And uh, so ultimately it came down to his car, and uh, when I suggested that we didn't have to tow his prized car, that we could simply get the keys and give the keys to a good friend of his and his friend could take it, uh, that changed the entire tone. Once he realized that he had something to live for and that, uh, and not, you know, in, in the beginning of this, I asked your, your listeners to reserve judgment. This isn't a guy who is placing his car ahead of the value of his son. This was a guy who was in crisis, who saw no way out, who saw nothing good about his future, everything going wrong, uh, until we provided that one glimmer of something positive that he could look forward to, and that changed his whole outlook. And ultimately, you know, he would set down the gun and he would walk out and everybody would be safe. And he probably did, you know, 10 days in jail. And now he's, you know, I'm sure he is happy that he made that life choice. And it wasn't um, that he devalued his son. I'm sure he loves him very much. It was at that moment in his lifetime, he could see no brightness in his future. And we provided him just that glimmer of, of brightness and he seized onto it. Uh, the flip side to that was a, a horrible story, uh, James McClintock. And uh, James uh, was a good man who uh, 
had suffered setback after setback after setback. His longtime girlfriend had died recently of cancer, um, and you know he lost his job. He had uh, some opioid addictions, and this is long before the epidemic. But he had some opioid addictions, and then just recently his dog died. He had nothing to live for, and uh, he saw nothing but hopelessness and helplessness. And in spite of our pleas not to step out the door with a shotgun, as he told us he would, he stepped out the door, uh, pointed a shotgun at myself and the SWAT officers, and and uh, you know we had to take his life. But uh, you know there was, in his mind, no brightness in his future. He had seen nothing but darkness, and uh, so it's a, a tragic ending to a tragic life story. Yeah, a lot of a lot of things loaded in this topic, guys. I would say, you know, um, Tom triggers a lot of thoughts for me. So I think one thing, like my season of my life, I've been in the martial arts. I grew up in inner city Baltimore. Grew up uh, was a wimpy kid. Grew up and did a lot of fighting. And I and I thought, you know, in the, in recent years, I thought, you know, when people grow up, Tom, they're usually talking about stories like, hey, you know, people sit around in a bar or wherever they do and they talk about eh, let me tell you about this fight story and I did this and the guy talked smack and then I punched him and I beat him up and you hear those stories right those those bar stories people tell and how they beat people up when they were younger or whatever and I I realized like man I take no I've I've been in my street situations uh, growing up over the years and I, I like I looked at him I reflected <coughs> like, I never took pride any fight I ever want I never it never made me feel good to hurt another person. Even when they were bad people, they deserved it, never felt good. And I think extrapolating that, I can say, and I've worked, I've covered, you know, police stuff for for 12 years or so of my life, and I can say that despite what's going on, I mean, most, the vast majority of police officers that I've met are good people, decent people, want to do the right thing. And I don't think, I think there's very, relatively very few officers out there who would take any pride in shooting someone for instance. I don't think, I think if you understand human violence and you live in the fight world or in a law enforcement world, you would understand nobody. I mean, your life, you look in boxing. I covered boxing 32 years. Go look and do the research. I think there's 1,300 or so boxing deaths since 1891 documented. 1,300, 1,400 or so. There's a roughly four of those a year now. Uh, four boxing deaths a year still in 2018. And look at the fighters that kill another fighter. Almost without exception, never the same. It's a very... You want to see a fighter's career plummet? Let him kill another fighter. They, we are wired as humans not to want to do that not to want no very few people unless they're evil would take great pride in that and so even when I hear you talk about this guy Jameis you know you had to do you guys had to do nobody wants to nobody wants to go home nobody takes pride I mean yeah it's a bad guy's having a bad day but I do hear respect in your voice that hey this is a guy that you know not up, up until that point until he points a gun at you Maybe not a terrible guy. Person who's just wave to wave to wave. He's not in his right mind. You're trying to get him back. And what's interesting as I hear you talk is you talk about trying to... This is a person who's maybe maybe having the worst day of their life, right? Everything is just crescendoing. And he's got one foot or most of his body and he wants out. And maybe he doesn't want to do it himself. And, you know, it sounds like a suicide by cop situation. 
and you're just trying to find that one thing to hinge him on. You're in a in a sea of darkness. You're trying to be the sunlight, whatever creeping. You're trying to do that. The guy with the car, and it's fascinating. So when you you got guys like Viktor Frankl, who you've probably heard of, man, you know, Man Search for Meaning, and some of these great psychotherapists over the year. Who have you read? I guess that prepares you because you've got to you've got to be really good at finding what's the button, what's the thing. You know, humans are wired a certain way. Who do you read or is it, no, Frank, it's just fluid. It's just years and years and years of doing this. There's no one you could read. You just have to, you have to live it and you have to be an officer in the trenches and that's where you learn most of it. Or can you go and, and read some guy, somebody like a Victor Frank or a great psychotherapist and get an idea of this is what's important to most human beings. This is the way they're wired and then you learn to you know, read people. So, as I mentioned, first off, uh, I've not read any how-to book that uh, that influenced me. <laughs> no, um, how, the how-to of hostage negotiation. No, but there's lots of you know yeah. books out there that tell you how to do yeah. this. It's just yeah. I I've not read any. That, right. Um, there are uh, some outstanding experts in the field. A good buddy of mine, Gary Nessner, who is the preeminent hostage negotiator, is the chief negotiator for the FBI for a lot of years. Um, but I mentioned earlier in the podcast that we never work alone. We always work as a team. So you've got at least three, sometimes as many as five people listening and offering suggestions. All of these five are experienced police officers with all of that life experience that comes with it. Um, hugely intuitive type of people because that's who's attracted to hostage negotiation. Yeah. That's interesting. So intuition is a big is a big deal with this. Everybody, Highly intuitive. Now, it's not just scientific. This is a moving, fluid thing, and intuition is a big deal. It's it's often said correctly that hostage or crisis negotiations, it's an art, not a science. Um, and so, you know, for every, every attempt to find that one little glimmer of hope, you know, is is a hundred different topics that didn't provide that. So we're always trying to find out. Now, we, we research into their background. We talk to people at Nome. We're always trying to find that one hook that that uh, will try and you know uh, illuminate, you know, brighten that that glimmer of hope. Um, and we also choose who is going to be the primary negotiator based on personality. Uh, uh, I ah, worked, you you try to match up. Hey, my personality is not working with this particular. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I worked with uh, very closely with two other negotiators, Kathy O'Connor and Pat Neville, uh, very close friends of mine. Each of us have very different personalities. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kathy was uh, is a mom, and, and so was able to provide that maternal uh, dimension that worked especially well with uh, inadequate, you know, men that that felt uh, that their personalities were less than adequate. They just needed somebody to inspire them. And so we all had different personalities, um, and, and we would try and match the proper negotiator with the type of person and the type of personality we were dealing with. But it's absolutely uh, intuitive, and it's we as negotiators do far more listening than we do talking. Um, so I'm not trying to cure this person. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to get them through the crisis to the point where they can start thinking rationally and they can work themselves through the crisis. Emotionality and rationality are the opposing sides of a seesaw, teeter-totter. With increased emotionality, your ability to be rational diminishes. Mm -hmm. 
And so what we're trying to do is provide some balance so that uh, that the person, while highly emotional, mm-hmm. can also have sufficient rationality that they can start processing things intellectually. Now, these hostage uh, negotiation situations, usually life and death, right? It can be life and death. And what's interesting is usually you have this team of hostage negotiators with different personality types, different approaches, and so you're trying to read this person and find out maybe the female maternal approach works better. Maybe. Is there anyone in your experience, someone's having the worst day of their life, they're thinking about being violent themselves or maybe taking someone else's life, is it, does the Bob Knight hardline Dan Gable approach ever work or is it like, no, that never works again? In other words, being a hardliner with that guy or woman that's in there might do something bad. Do you always have to usually be, no, it has to be a softer approach, or does a firm approach work, or can you even be like, could Bob Knight, I'm just saying, I'm using that as an example, could a real firm get off your ass, you can that ever work, because it seems like, man, that can never work, or is it like, no, that is on the table, you have to read them, and sometimes taking a firmer Bob Knight approach, that can be the button for some of them. Or is the, it always a soft sell? No, the, the answer to the question is yes, that's, that is an option. But before, and this, this is you know, the art of life, before you can influence anybody, you have to have established a rapport. Um, you tell them stuff about yourself? On occasion, sure. No. I, have, I have no problem. I have kids. Or Absolutely. I, I, before you can build a rapport, you have to demonstrate compassion and empathy. Um, and part of that may be sharing uh, information about yourself. A breakthrough, seminal event in the what would ultimately be an unsuccessful negotiation at Waco was when Gary Nessner made a videotape and he showed a picture of his family uh, and sent it in to David Koresh and said, hey, I'm a man, I'm a dad. This is my family, my wife Carol, my son Rusty. Uh, and, he, and, and that was a defining moment in that negotiation. Now, of course, yep. that yep. that incident would go, you know, horribly but, wrong. But meaning that the, the the greatest success he had was hinged around that was Be, when he did. That, that was a defining moment. And in the learning point there isn't the fact that that he shared the information. The defining point is that we cannot begin to influence someone else's behavior unless we've built a rapport, and unless they will allow us inside of them. In, then and only then can we provide any influence whatsoever on, on their ultimate. Behavior. How long does it take you to get that trust? I mean, usually. That was one of the most frustrating things. Usually hours? Is it usually, or is it. That was the most frustrating thing for the public because many times they were kept out of their homes because we had a security perimeter right. set up, or the person may be, you know, on an overpass bridge and traffic's backed up, you know, all the way to California border. Very frustrating, but as a negotiator, you can't worry about that. Report. Take, it sets its own timetable. But you can't begin to influence, you can't force the rapport building process until it takes its cycle. And you can't even think about trying to influence somebody until you've established that rapport. Now, towards your initial point, can you ever use the Bobby Knight mm-hmm. metaphor? Yeah. We would call it more paternalistic. Yeah. Can you take that parental role and start telling them what to do and giving them directions as opposed to giving them suggestions. Yep. Yes, but imagine yourself as a uh, as a teenager and how resistant you were to being told what to do unless you value that person's opinion. 
when you're a teenager, the only opinions you value were your, your pals. You certainly didn't value your parents' opinion uh, unless they had, you know, established this type of uh, rapport with you. And as a teenager, that rarely happens. So it's, it's interesting. I'm here, Life Jitsu, Art of Life, Tom Monahan, LVMPD, retired uh, police vet, homicide vet, hostage negotiator, a person who has sort of seen it all, been in Las Vegas 33 years. I was fortunate to uh, to work opposite Tom as a journalist. So we're here, we're coming down home stretch, but I want to talk to you really quick about, to your hostage negotiator, You've how do you, in applying... The, because again, you're you you're a humble guy, Tom. But you're you're a you're like a human psychologist. You're not a certified psychologist, but you're you're basically you know an intuitive. You're a you're an, an indirectly informally trained psychologist. That's part of that's a big part of what you did. Reading people, even as a police officer, and then with hostage negotiation. How do you? Um, when you go in, into your regular life, like trying to be the best Tom Monahan possible, what's been the hardest things for you, I guess, in, in life, work-life balance maybe being one of them, what's been the greatest challenges for you in your life and, and what were the, the steps or the changes you implemented to, to, to better yourself? <clears throat> Perhaps the, uh, the biggest challenge that I had was uh, in my professional career is that, as you mentioned, I, I had a, a very privileged and blessed career. You know, I had seen a lot, I had done a lot, and uh, in my view, I had accumulated a great deal of knowledge and, and uh, experience and deserved some credibility for, for having done that. Mm-hmm. Um, the police department's a paramilitary organization. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we all have a strict chain of command. And by some in the police department, uh, greater rank uh, commands greater respect mm-hmm. and certainly greater authority. Yeah. Uh, and so because I was, in their mind, a mere lieutenant and they you know, had stars in their collar, my viewpoint wasn't as valuable as others because, uh, well, I was just a lieutenant. Uh, that was exceedingly frustrating for me. Because again, I had there was a lot of miles, you know, to use that metaphor. There was a lot of miles that I had I had traveled, uh, and so I was dismissed summarily by those that had just a fraction of my experience, simply because I was outranked. That was for someone like me. That's pretty frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms, doesn't come down to the best ideas winning or logic or. Good debating just maybe comes, comes down, down to stars rank. break bars. Yeah, stars break bars. Uh, that isn't universal. I had some outstanding. Right, right. I understand. But but in your particular situation, with what you, your perception was, they, that you were, they you were, were you were they encountering were certain that. certain superior yeah. officers that that dismissed me because. Yeah. And and I'll be frank, Frank. Uh, yes. I am abrasive. I, that is my personality. You're too... You're Bostonian. Kind, you're too kind to say it. Maybe Irish? I am an uh, Irish, well, we can, Italian... We can deductively from, reason yeah, that... So, so I am abrasive, and that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And so even if I, I may have had a good idea, it may have been dismissed because of who I am, not what I had to say. Uh, and I know and a that, thing or two about that. Maybe actually, maybe a thousand thing or twos about that. Actually. So... So you know, it's 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 a, a character flaw I know, 
I wish I could change. I've tried to change. I've tried to soften some of my sharp edges, knowing that, you know, uh, it's uh, it's not always best to be right. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's more important to be effective, um, and I have to constantly remind myself of that. Um, uh, now that I'm retired, uh, I feel like I have a lot to share. Um, so, so hopefully, you know, there'll be some some of your listeners out there that will in, take to heart some of the some of the things I've seen and perhaps apply some of the lessons uh, that we've talked about here. But uh, it's it's been a real hoot. We're coming down home stretch. This has carried on longer than I thought because Tom Monahan's an encyclopedia of of frontline knowledge. He's dealt with some of the most desperate life and death situations and an encyclopedia. Final two things. Number one, we have something interesting going on in our society right now. Particularly, I'm going to just talk about the boys, developing boys. And some are saying, hey, we're whippifying boys. Everybody gets a medal. We're boys specifically. We're whippifying them. It's the golden age of girl power. Great things happen for women. I'm happy to see that empowering women, you know, in, in employment and beyond. And, and so women are doing some great things right now and, and much deserved. But we're talking about the boys. And some of us that are looking at that is like, are we whippifying them? How alpha should they be? And, you know, sort of my ideal has always been like a warrior poet thing, having a balance where we, we make tough people, but we make them very kind and, and compassionate and empathetic and just really trying to fuse, uh, you know, having a, you know, you have always have the option, whether you're a martial artist, a fighter, or you're a police officer, or you're military, you always have the option of, of maybe might everything fight go fight going wrong right worst case scenario but i've come uh, over my life to really believe like that's an absolute last resort i i take i take more pride in it let's diffuse things let's be kind to people where are you just in your interesting life i mean you've seen it all sort of where do you see like if you were to develop you have a son in your mind just your little prism not to tell the world but how do you think like how do you rate your, your boys, your girls? What's the best things to download into them to, in your mind, your parenting style, what did you really want to download into your kids? Or if you had to do it now, because sometimes we did it a certain way, we did the best we knew, but now how would you, how do we strike that balance, I'm saying, between the warrior and like the wimpy kid. I was the wimpy kid. I tried to be the warrior. How do you strike that balance? Yin yang. It's empathetic, but also tough kid, not going to be bullied. How do you how do you start to strike that balance, Tom, to produce better kids, better people, better society? Well, you're you're through your eyes. So I think I think we as a society are doing our children a disservice because we treat them identically in school. We expect them to behave identically in school. Uh, many doctors, many scientists say that there is just a biological difference in the way uh, young boys and girls behave and interact with each other. Um, yet when we send them to school for nine months out of the year, we expect them and demand them to behave identically, this kind of homogeneous kind of mixture, uh, without appreciating and accommodating the, the distinction between uh, male and female. I think that that does a disservice. I, I think that it's led to a lot of uh, diagnoses of ADHD, um, and I think it creates a whole lot of frustration. Additionally, I think once they get to you know the, the teen years, because they've been expected to act identically as this gender-neutral thing, um, it, it, it 
compels certain boys to really overemphasize the the male we'll call exaggerate it, their alphaness. Exactly. Exaggerate the alphaness. Uh, and, and certainly I'm no expert on this, but I do worry. And, and, you know, I've got a daughter that's 26. I've got a son that's 23. He's on Metropolitan Police Department now. Mm-hmm. And I'm remarried, and I have a 13-year-old. So I'm going through it a second time. And, uh, you know, I feel like I'm a better parent the second time around, not because I'm retired, but rather because I've kind of seen the path and I've traveled the path once before, and so it's not quite as scary, and I'm a little bit more confident. Uh, I'm also a lot less fatigued than mm-hmm. I was when I was in homicide. So I think that, uh, you know, if we as American society continue to devalue the gender differences from age 3 through 13, we're going to see the disparity of gender differences exaggerated from 13 to 23. And then from 23 on, we'll, you know, we're responsible for our own path. But that's kind of my initial thought as the casual observer of the human condition. Final thing. You've seen a lot, you know, a lot of homicides, hostage negotiation. You've seen, you've had to respond. You and a lot of police officers respond to some of the worst situations. How, what have you done to ensure that despite everything you've seen, you don't become jaded? And you can continue to see the glass is half full. What are your steps? Is there a process for it or their daily habits? What are the steps you take mentally, habit-wise, to say, I'm going to train myself to see the glass is half full? What do you do? How do you do that? How do you protect that? This is my best advice to any of your listeners that are police officers or firefighters or physicians or anybody that is in these high-stress positions. Keep your your network of friends to include lots and lots of non-cops, non-firefighters. Keep your network of friends, keep your friendships, people that don't share your worldview. Because I know as a young cop, you know, it, it's natural. I hung up with cops. And it became, you're either a cop or you're an asshole. Mm-hmm. You're either a good guy or you're a bad guy. And that was, the world was that dichotomous. Um, keep your range, keep your friendships diverse because that will keep you balanced and centered. If you surround yourself with people that share your worldview, you'll have no worldview, you'll have your view. So that's how you manage to keep, keep sanity and, and everything in yeah, now, I, I'm not saying I did it very well for right, right, right. all of those 30 years that I was a cop. Right, right, but that's now um, looking back. And but that's my best advice to any of your listeners that are cops, that want to be cops or firefighters or, or physicians. Uh, you can't have a balanced worldview if you surround your people, surround yourself with people that share your view. This is Frank Forza here, Life Jitsu, concluding with Tom Monahan. It's always a pleasure. I haven't seen Tom in years, and it was a pleasure to work opposite him when I was a news journalist. Tom, is there any way that people, I don't know, maybe someone listening will want to uh, reach out to you? Do you want to share your email? If somebody has an email or you know, what says, hey, I, Tom Monahan, your, you know, your, your story, whatever, I, it resonated. Is there... Well, if... Uh, 
maybe they can go. Maybe they can go through me or something. If, I, if, I can pass uh, them. If they're listening to your podcast, and if you would be so yeah, generous, yeah. I'd, I'd uh, be happy to answer any questions or sure. respond to your listeners. So, you guys, if you have anything, if you if you hear this and you want me to say thank you or whatever, or some pass along some feedback, uh, my email is Frankie F R A N K I E at frankieforza.com uh, love to hear from you I know this is a long these are long episodes but this is what I do whether people are listening or not I sit here Tom and I would have been having this conversation anyway and so we might as well put it out there and, and see if it uh, if it resonates with anybody so uh, thank you so much for listening if you uh, if you're also my website is www.frankieforza.com one of these days Tom Monahan was asking me about my name change my, my birth name is Frank Anthony Carreri my name now is Frank Carreri Forza that will be legal soon and so Tom was asking me about that earlier we're going to do a podcast on that we'll do a print version on that too it's uh it's it's a it's a you know I guess some people might find an interesting story it's not just because I'm trying to be P. Diddy or anything like that okay Have a great day, everybody. Thank you so much for listening.